Hello, I'm Tara Kumar and here is the news. A person living with HIV who is in effective treatment cannot pass it on. The slogan U equals U stands for undetectable equals untransmittable. So you can f*** without fear. Hello everyone and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pause Podcast. My name is Robbie. Brand new and just for you <laughs> equals you <laughs> from down under. You are never not doing to you because you... I know, I have puns, Slogans. I can't stop myself. The pun queen. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a load of pun, everybody. <laughs> you didn't know that. You're a load of much. We're going to have a pun-packed episode. <laughs> the pressure. The pressure. There is a lot of pressure. Um, I feel in a lot of pressure because we're in the presence of Australian royalty, Veda. A, a dame. A dame. <laughs> dame but, Enda over here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but not only royalty, family, apparently. Allegedly. Allegedly. We're going to have to do a rapid DNA test. <laughs> do you have rapid... Yeah, I know you have rapid HIV tests, but do you have rapid DNA tests here in know. Australia? Because we need to ask the experts, I yes, think. Yes, let's, let's find out. Let's bring them on. Mark or AM. Hello. Hello, hello. Good to see you both. Or for our listeners is my mother's maiden name, so I'm I'm half or, and Mark here is all or. That's O or or. Yes. Um, although O or E would sue this too, because let's face it, we're golden. <laughs> You're mental. <laughs> I mean metal. <laughs> rare. So, yeah, rare. Do you have um? Rapid DNA test, sir? Well, I don't know, but we might be able to fast track one before you go. Great. I'll spit wherever you like. Ah! <laughs> Is that AM privileges? Oh, uh, well, possibly. Possibly we can make a phone call. Um, so you got this honorific from all of your community work, basically, and you've been trailblazing. And um, I was looking at your work portfolio and I was just like, for fuck's sake, what has this man not done? So you were president of ACON between 2008 and 2015, right? And for people who do not know, ACON is one of the most like, I don't know, reputable uh, organizations in the world. Um, every time you go to a HIV organization, you always hear 5016 Street in London and ACON in, um, in Sydney and uh, you know, Checkpoint in Barcelona. And your eyes just roll in the back of your head because we're just so jealous of how good you do on everything. And I visited both this year and I hate to say, but I have a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> And it begins with an A. Uh, <laughs> everything that you guys, uh, well, that you were involved with, the graphics, the messaging, the way that this whole HIV education is rolled out in this country has been so inspiring since we got here. I have so many pictures on my camera roll. And today I have a bag full yeah. of bits and pieces that I collected. We're in the Acon office, mm -hmm. by the way, folks. And yeah, wow, I think the best of the best. So congratulations to Acon. I've never taken up so many condoms in my life. But I haven't reason, touched one in years. <laughs> but the packaging even on the condom box is amazing. So um, bringing you back in. Yes, yes, <laughs> Mark. yes. <laughs> Um, from what was your experiences of uh, the HIV in Sydney and what got you into the movement? Yeah, really good good question. So I um, I left school in 1983, so that's dating me a bit, so don't do those maths. Um, so right at the beginning of the HIV um, epidemic here in Australia. So HIV has been part of my life yeah. uh, for all that time. And um, I eventually um, stepped more into uh, working with people living with HIV in a government job in the early 90s. It was only uh, not until about 2002 I became more involved. So I was the president or co-chair of Mardi Gras. Wow. And by being that, you act, interact a lot with ACON. And then by the time I finished doing that, 
um, the uh, president of Acon at the time said, well, why don't you come on the Acon board? So I joined the Acon board. And um, uh, as I say, the rest is history. It's, it's an amazing organisation. It's um, truly come out of community and that's why it's so special. Yeah. It's about peer-based uh, response to HIV prevention and uh, getting people into treatment and care and support. So that's the, that's the thing that ex- has always excited me about it. And, you know, I was lucky I've, be, I've been in the governance of the organisation, but to be here with all of these amazing people that work here who are so inspirational, mm-hmm. and some of whom have been here for years and years and years, like decades, mm-hmm. and also to be able to, through that, meet some of the elders of our community who were there at the beginning, who had those fights, who lived through those very dark days, to now be where we are, which is, a, for a lot of people, a very different experience. Yes, thank God for that, but Indeed. on the shoulders of our elders, as we said. Let's bring you back to Mardi Gras. And the reason why I want to bring you back to Mardi Gras is because we just experienced our very first our Mardi first. Gras. Oh, Mardi Gras virgins. Yes. Yes, not anymore. My cherry has popped. Uh-huh. Officially. Officially. And we... Yeah, wear those tests. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yes, we were behind the Sydney Queer Irish and we had an absolute ball. We were on TV and it was just one of the most manic, fun It was moments. one of the funniest, actually, experiences of my life because uh, uh, shout out to the Sydney Queer Irish, they're brilliant and they created these beautiful harps that people were wearing as a costume uh, for the parade. But unfortunately, maybe the wheels on the bus, the wheels on the harp were a little smaller than they needed to be. So Robbie and I were kind of flitting between waving to the crowd and carrying the harps. (laughs) And they were heavy. Like my little noodle arms were shaking through the whole thing. Tell me your funny stories of all your Mardi Gras. Oh, Mardi Gras. The dirtier the better. Well, I can't tell everybody's secrets. Um, Who did you really get your AM bad? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Which dark corner? So I was um, very lucky. So people might not know, but in 2002, Mardi Gras went bust. It um, went into administration because it didn't have the money to pay some bills. And to the credit to the board at that time, they went into administration. And then a group of organised community organisations, Acon, one of them. So there was Pride, Acon, um, Queer Screen, and the Gay and Lesbian Rights Lobby came together to rescue Mardi Gras, established a, what they called a Phoenix Board. And um, I was lucky at that time to come in, was invited in by some of the board to help organise the party in 2003, which actually paid some of the, um, the debt off with the administrators. So I've been very lucky to be part of this, what was called New Mardi Gras, now once more called Sydney Gay and Lesbian <laughs> Mardi Gras, to help resurrect that and it's still going, what's this, 21 years later. Wow. Um, and that's an amazing, another amazing community story around what we do when we come together and we, um, we work together. We really epitomise resilience, don't we? And what about you personally? What was your favourite Mardi Gras? Oh, there's, there's too many. Well, of course, I have to say, um, being a, a good gay man of a certain age, um, uh, whenever Kylie is on the stage mm. is um, an amazing, amazing experience. But one of the things I think Mardi Gras has been famous for over the years are their shows. Yeah. Um, you know, amazing DJs, amazing set design, amazing lighting. But the, the shows have always been fantastic. And that's not just with the talent, because Mardi Gras has always had a commitment to having community up on stage. Yes. Um, And probably one of my proudest moments is when you're 
chair or co-chair of Mardi Gras, one of the things you get to do is you get to walk out on the stage at Mardi Gras party and to welcome everybody. So you have a sea wow. of 7,000 people who generally shut up and you can, you can give a, a short welcome speech to everybody, often about, you know, we do that on the parade for our history and for the people out there, but tonight we do this for us and we celebrate who we are. And that's, that's probably the most exciting and, and proud thing about being involved with Mardi Gras. Um, kind of coming back to, to your work um, in the HIV world, would you consider yourself more a campaigner or more in the policy world, kind of political policy world? That's a really good question. I sometimes wonder whether you can separate it as much as that. Um, you know, I was just at something uh, for Sydney World Pride and we were talking about, um, you know, changing laws and taking up opportunities and a good reminder of, you know, the personal is the political. So often we come into these roles or these community organisations as someone who wants to change the world, who has an activist bent, who wants to, you know, storm the ramparts. But once you get in there and you've got to then work with, you know, the structures that you have. So you can still be an activist at heart, you can still be an advocate, but you've got to learn how to do that cleverly. Um, and you might then be drawn into policy and liaising with politicians and trying to get those people in the middle yeah. to move towards the people that are on your side or where you are, mm -hmm. not worrying about the ones that will never be there. So that's really important. Mm -hmm. But I still think there's a role for activists. Yes. Um, so that you can create the energy in the community to say, we need this to happen. And you can come in behind that and go, well, here's a solution. You can respond to it mm -hmm. um, doing this. Uh, and sometimes you can be in both camps or swap from one to the other. Yes. Yes. I love how people like you, I, I've met a few along the way in my activism, bring a, a sort of finesse to what mm. we do and really help us to open doors, kind of grease the wheels. Yeah. Because I can be a bit angry at times, or maybe a little bit too passionate and not as smart as mm -hmm. I need to be, but I have had mentors and people like you who've stepped in and just helped me to finesse my message, mm -hmm. I guess. And it's one of the things I've found so charming and fascinating about you from the minute that we met. I was like, this is the kind of friend I need, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And it turns out we're cousins. Oh, look at that! <laughs> <laughs> like water. That's Tribe, right. family. That's right, yeah. But I think you're right. I think it's about um, people understanding that if you continue to punch someone in the face and you're really angry with them all the time, you don't have that opportunity to invite them into the conversation yeah. Yeah. and start to explore what the possibilities might be. Because in the end, we've got to work out, well, what's, what's the win for that person? Mm -hmm. And if we're too um, adversarial, people tend to shut down. I think a beautiful way to channel uh, anger is through activism a lot of the time because it brings the politicians along the side, it brings society with you. And a lot of the time, if you want to change the politician's mind, you really have to get society on your back. Um, and one thing I love about ACON is that you have such an emphasis on strong, clear messaging. Do you have like a favourite campaign that you were part of or policy that you were part of? Or... Um, oh, that's a really good question. I think one of the, the um, best campaigns, just in a general sense of changing um, the way in which people see the world or making it a more inclusive and diverse place, um, I think was ACON's campaign and a long time ago now. It was an invitation for people to 
Um, it, uh, well, to borrow from last year's NAIDOC week, so we have a national um, First Nations Peoples Week where we celebrate um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture um, and contributions to our country. They have a, they had a theme called Get Up, Stand Up, Show Up, mm -hmm. which I think is just beautiful um, mm -hmm. slogan for any activist, yes. really. Mm -hmm. And it would say something that was a bit like that for me, which was an invitation for people to actually stand up and take action but not just to be there in person, but to say something. Right. And I think that's where you get some of this change um, in the world and the change that we might want with our own community. You know, I don't mm. think we can say that the LGBTIQA plus or um, positive community is always kind to each other, but I think it's a, an invitation for people to come up and say, well, this is, this is what's important to me. This is the change I want to see. Yeah. And you then facilitate that in people's heads about well, you can do something about it. Yeah. Um, so just in terms of your your role in HIV for so long, um, what's the biggest changes other than prepping you because you that you have seen? Well, obviously there are major parts of it. But like <laughs> you, you can't say that without it. But like from Sydney back in twenty eight compared to now. Yeah. So so I joined the ACON board in two thousand six. So in two thousand six just as a board member, not just as a board, as a board member. Uh, big respect to all those board members uh, out there, uh, including the organisations, really important. Uh, but for Always me, the bridesmaids. <laughs> Never the CEO. Uh, so uh, 2006, and you might remember uh, 2006, there was the Swiss statement that came out where we were starting to see the impact of um, treatment on transmission. Yeah. And um, I remember being in board meetings where we talked about it and went, what position do we take? This is really interesting, but how far do we mm -hmm. talk about this in terms of this is really quite dramatic? Um, and really, since that time, you know, that's then built on, and we've eventually got to prep in U equals U. And um, I think bring, the biggest uh, achievement, I think, is bringing the community along. So we've changed from the messaging being condoms, condoms, condoms. Yeah to now, um, you know, there's a whole range of different prevention um, approaches that are all good, choose what you like. There's, there's much more in the basket. How exciting is that? Mm -hmm. do, do what you need to be whoever you are in whatever situation you find yourself. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big change for me. All of these yeah. biomedical things and everything, absolutely fantastic, well done to the scientists and, and um, physicians, but it's how the community has come along in that yeah. journey. And they've, once more, you know, it's the history of HIV, particularly in Australia, but I think internationally, where community has led these developments. Even though medicine comes in and does, does things, and that's fantastic, it's no good having a pill. It's no good um, having some of these, this research if the community doesn't take it up and do something with it. Yeah. And organisations like ACON, uh, and like it across Australia and across the world, have actually led community into... Here's what are the what the facts are. Yeah. Here's what you can choose from. Um, we're going to make sure you're fully informed, and then you know knock yourself out. Go and go and do what you want to do to have a great great life. Because for me, it's just that ethos. What how you brought those campaigns forward was you just took the shame and judgment out of the options. Which when it was the condoms, condoms, condoms message, it was all wear condoms or else you deserve HIV. Not to say that that was the message, but that's what's implied through the old messaging. It's like um, whatever happened, 
well, the community being brought along happened was that you revolutionised it, and now Australia is near to, or New South Wales, I should say, is near to eradicating new HIV transmissions. Say that again, Robbie. New South Wales is close to um, eliminating new HIV transmissions. Like, come isn't on, that wild for for us back home. That that blows my mind because mm. we are having the opposite experience mm. at the moment in in Ireland and. Yeah, I feel like you guys really have a lot to teach us and we're lucky to be here mm-hmm. to learn. Yeah. But Mark, from little acorns, yep. big trees grow. <laughs> and of you've course. moved on. I did. And you're now the president of another organization. Correct. Never the board member, always the board member. <laughs> <I am. laughs> Tell us a little bit about your new role. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so um, after ACON, I had a little bit of a rest. I was a bit tired. Yeah. Um, and the amazing Dr. Justin Coonan took over as president. And um, I, w- I was invited onto the uh, board of our national PIC. So in Australia, uh, your listeners may or may not know that Australia is a federation of six states and two territories, mm-hmm. each with their own governments. Uh, which creates lots of joy around how you do consistent policy around the country. Oh, that's difficult. But we do have a federal government as well, which tries to, um, or ta- which takes all the tax money and then gives it back to the states and territories, <laughs> but also funds services and programs and policies. Um, so FAO, in similar um, uh, vein, so the Australian Federation of AIDS Organisations, is a federation of the the ACONs in each of the states and territories. So there were similar community-based organisations established in the 1980s um, by community in each of the states and territories. And then we also um, have uh, four national peaks, as we call them. So uh, Scarlet Alliance, a national peak organisation for sex worker organisations. Uh, AVIL, the national organisation for people who use drugs. Uh, Nukana, national HIV alliance for people from First Nations communities and of course the National Association of People Living with HIV Australia. Mm -hmm. So we bring all of those together in this organisation we call AFAIA. We love an acronym here in Australia. (laughs) You're good Um, at them in Yeah, and um, I'm very proud to be the president of AFAIA. How can you be president of all of that? I'm exhausted even thinking about it. Like that's a lot of management, right? It is, it's, um, but you know, we're, we're fortunate because we've been doing this for 40 years. It's a well-oiled machine. So as we were talking about before, we love the people who have come before us. We stand in their shoulders. They set all this up. Mm-hmm. Um, we've always done it together. We've done it in partnership. I call it the Grand Coalition. So community, researchers, clinicians, uh, policymakers, um, uh, Academics. Academics who, who come together, politicians, yeah, mm. who come together and say, well, in Australia we're not going to make this a political issue. It never has been. Ever. Never, never, never. Can we just say this for two seconds? Because my mind was blown when we went to, we were invited, thanks to Matthew Vaughan. Had, had we'll call it the chorus party. Right? Yeah, the <laughs> chorus party everywhere. In this beautiful, I don't know what would you call it, this uh, building overlooking the Sydney Harbour. Skyscraper. It was scattered. We were on this top of skyscraper with free alcohol, so obviously we went. <laughs> <laughs> but there was politicians there. And each politician made a commitment to continue on with the bipartisan um, support for all things HIV and the wider LGBTQIA plus community. What does bipartisan mean, Robbie? 
Bipartisan means basically that it's not on um, um, political sides, that they're all working together, essentially, if I'm to really dumb it down. But that, but that's what it is. And dumb it down for me, darling. Yeah. <laughs> um, so partisans going along party lines. Do you know, they're just being polemic for the sake of being polemic to say, well, this is my party stance, and no, this is your party stance. So when you have a bipartisan bill, it means the whole political system supports it or supports funding into certain organisations. So the fact that you have had something as stigmatising as HIV being shown through a public health lens rather than the culture war lens is just phenomenal. It is phenomenal and I think it's because there were some very smart people at the very beginning. In 1983 when HIV had arrived in Australia, we now know it, it was probably here a couple of years earlier, but it really started to hit. We, had a, we were at the cusp of a change of government. So a, a Labor government, a left-leaning left, um, government, came into power, a new health minister who was adopted, Neil Blewett, mm-hmm. arrives... What a great name. Blewett. Ah! <laughs> he blew it. And I knew it. <laughs> lots, of, lots of things to be talked about, but this was one of the things, and he reached across the aisle to the shadow health minister, Peter Baum, and together they said, we're going to make this work. They were both doctors. Wow. And that's where it started. And I think it was that legacy that's just continued, no matter who the... the um, health minister or the prime minister has been and people have lots of criticisms about politicians but not one of them has actually said um we're going to take this up and make this a big issue now of course in the in the press yes it's been an issue at times but even there i don't it post the 1980s where it was pretty ugly it's been not too bad Mm -hmm. balm and blew it names to remember that's right but that said um, we've still got issues around criminalisation of HIV. And that leads me to my next question. Yeah. If you could lube up yep. three policies and just hammer them through, Ooh. what three policies would um, you... Yeah, good, good. I think, you know, the, the legal environment is such an important part to yes. responding to lots of issues. And HIV was one of them in the early... Particularly in the early, early days. And so there was a lot of work around law reform here. But it got so far and then it sort of paused. Um, And I think we really need to come back to things like um, criminalisation of transmission. There's still some in our public health acts around um, uh, transmission and offences, you know, about who's responsible, a disclosure. Um, I think there are probably, and I don't know whether these are legislative changes, but there's probably some policy changes around immigration as well. Okay. I know there definitely is. That's why we're here, Mark. But um, can I ask, has there been criminal cases brought forward on non-disclosure laws in the last recent years, or is it just there to to make people fearful? Um, uh, Actually, I don't know the answer to that, but but I do hear anecdotally at times, you know, it's it's not something that doesn't happen. Okay. Uh, It's it's not well publicised often, so we have... Um, here in this this building, the HIV AIDS Legal Centre, so they actually do a lot of work around um, HIV and uh, stigma and um, and criminal prosecutions. Um, so it's not an unheard of thing, but it's just something that goes under the radar that most people don't realise occurs. Can I ask a question uh, before we get off the subject of immigration? If I presumed in my naivety that when I applied for a visa to come here, whether it's a holiday visa or, or a working holiday visa, that I was filling out the same forms as everybody else from around the world who was coming here for World Pride. But now I don't believe that's true. 
I think that there might be different forms oh, depending really? on where you're filling them out. We, yes. we heard a, um, a participant in the Human Rights Conference who was from a sub-Saharan Africa country. One of the questions was, what is your CD4 count? Yeah. Which, for, in our one, we weren't even asked about HIV. We weren't HIV. even asked about HIV. Because we weren't... We had our medication with us and it was only a visiting trip. Right. So, yeah. So, I think he was gonna br- he's going to bring that up at the conference soon, I think. So... There's, there's a, a lot of opportunity reform. I yeah. So let's continue this reflecting on the We're the agitators, you're the finessitator. <laughs> I love it. Opportunity well, reform is what I used to do with my entire life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, going forward, what are you working on in the HIV sphere? So, um, I've just got a little bit of paper in front of me. So... <laughs> that um, we have this plan called Agenda 2025 where we, we um, presented it to the federal government, I think in 21, August 21, so the previous government, mm-hmm. um, given the current Labor government was elected last year, last May. Um, but we, we did a lot of work with very smart people, not including me, um, led by Professor Andrew Grulick at the um, Kirby Institute here in mm-hmm. Sydney, uh, that looked at what do we need to do to achieve uh, elimination of HIV transmission and then what do we need to do to actually support people living with HIV. And it's, I think it's important to continue when we've got these grand goals of let's eliminate transmission to say, well, actually, we're going to have a whole lot of people who need to yeah, still have imagine. great lives and age well. Mm-hmm. So let's not forget that piece as well. And uh-huh. I always like to remind everybody of that. Um, but it's about um, you know testing treatments prevention and addressing stigma. So they're the four big pieces. And what we did with the government is we said, well, we're not just going to do that. We're going to actually tell you how much you you can invest to get the outcome that we want. And it was not a lot of money. It was about, I think, $52 million a year um, over the four or five years. And and all the good and the great said, here, this is is the investment you need. And here's here's what you invest in each of these things. Mm -hmm. Some of it's treatment, some of it's... Um, addressing stigma in community, some of it's some um, uh, uh, community-based peer-led prevention activities, or community-led peer-based support for people living with HIV. Um, if we do all of these things, we're going to get the outcome we want. So it's and it's often the way we're going to talk to politicians or governments and saying we're just not going to bash on your door or scream at you. We're going to say, well, okay, we'll also, we'll also give you the plan. Here's yeah. what we think you can do. And the great thing about Agenda 2025 was we got 38 important organisations across the organis- uh, country to sign up to it. Yeah. That, and that's very powerful. There's power in numbers. Absolutely. Power in numbers. And so there were research institutes, there were you know, senior clinicians, there was community, yeah. there were human rights activists that all came together and said, government, we believe this is what you need to do, this is what you need to invest and get on with it. It's like a very skilled plumber who comes around to your house and costs everything up and then presents you with it here's the problem here's the solution and this is what it's going to cost you yeah you're australian's best plumber (laughs) 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 it's so refreshing to hear this and like this is why we're blown away by the activism in uh, australia because it's it's not just about ending transmission. It's always been beyond suppression also, right? I mean, beyond suppression is everything from quality of life indicators to stigma and discrimination.
discrimination and everything's so parallel. It's even the offices just as well. Everyone's off on Thursday apparently. But it's, it's like Willy Wonka's chocolate factory in here. Yeah. Like, come into the drugs room and over here we have the domestic violence room and come on up here to the therapy room and I just sign up in every room. <laughs> yeah, because you're doing lots of things about like um, the effects of smoking on people living with HIV or do you know we're more likely to get diabetes and cancers and here's how you can stop that it's a holistic approach to HIV not just go on prep um, uh, get tested uh, here's condoms and if you get HIV go into the world on your own basically uh, so I think you're right so interestingly ACON uh, in the early 2000s actually started to talk about health wow. um, for people so and uh, coming out of the experience you know people living with HIV were saying well, actually I'm more than my diagnosis I've got a life so people had issues around mental health around thinking about what's what's going to be with aging I've got some other physical health issues that may have nothing to do with my HIV yeah. and so there wasn't much of a step then to say well if that's what people living with HIV are saying and we need to respond to that as community if we think through it it's probably the rest of the community that needs those sorts of supports as well, particularly when even the community tells us now, if I go into a normal primary healthcare setting, I don't necessarily feel like I'm welcome or I'm mm -hmm. not getting the questions asked that are culturally sensitive or safe for me. And so ACON's led the way in Australia, I think, around saying, well, our community um, has additional issues that we need to be addressing as well. Um, and that's not just as ACON um, or the other, what we call the AIDS councils, Mm -hmm. They changed their name over the years. But the other councils like Hakon across the country um, are also on board now. And it's about how do we build the capacity of mainstream services? Mm -hmm. um, something that, you know, in the early days of HIV, there was a lot of workforce development around HIV and AIDS. Um, uh, it's now about, well, how do you deliver culturally safe and sensitive supports to people from the LGBTIQA yeah. plus community? Mm -hmm. Deliver a... Deliveroo, Deliveroo, Deliveroo equals room. Well, there you go. <laughs> they are, yeah. exactly. Put the meds in a pouch and send them over. And how, do you do much work with the First Nations community? And what are the particular like, challenges there with HIV? Um, so I think, uh, so if at the FAO level, we've got the Anukana National Alliance, mm -hmm. HIV Alliance. So um, ANA's been around for a very long time. So that's... Um, uh, people within First Nations communities, so Austra uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities um, that have been working around HIV for a very long time. Uh, now the numbers of uh, people living with HIV from First Nations communities in Australia out of the whole population is not, not large, mm -hmm. but um, it's still you know, a reasonable number of people living with HIV. And there is a... Um, uh, a network of positive Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people called Patson that actually does a lot of work in, in this area. Um, we think there needs to be more, um, more work, more acknowledgement from government around how it supports um, people from uh, First Nations communities. Uh, and recently the government did actually fund a NACHO, we call it, another lovely um, acronym, um, <laughs> So the, uh, the national peak body for Aboriginal community controlled health organisations. So in Australia, we've got a, a great history of um, 
community-led, peer-based services in First Nations communities across mm -hmm. the country. So some of them you'll hear people call that Aboriginal medical services, mm -hmm. um, but it's it's actually First Nations-led and delivered. Um, and so Nacho got some funding to do some work within those networks, which are very well established and respected across the country. And of course, given who they are, deliver great culturally safe and appropriate um, supports for people. Um, I've heard a few times that they're saying there is a very big conversation happening with the Aboriginal community here in Australia. There's some plebiscite that's happening at the moment. <laughs> I don't want to put you on the spot, but could you give us kind of a rundown because like, like how the First Nations community as a whole is seen under governance or seen the people's eyes in um, in Australia is huge. We know it from the marriage equality referendum, for example, where people have a say on where you are in society. So do you want to just let our listeners know a little bit more? What's sure, I can, give you, I can give you my take on it. Yes, that's so, what I want to hear, the AM take. That's right. So in 2017, there was a big meeting of First Nations leaders across the country and it, it had been developed, this event had developed over a long time. And what they um, ended up doing was they came up with what's called the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Uluru being... The big, big red rock in the yes. middle of Australia. So very, very um, important cultural significance for First Nations people. So from that gathering, um, they uh, gave the Australian people the Uluru Statement, which is a beautiful, a beautiful um, description of uh, um, people's experience, their desires to have a different future. And most importantly, from my point of view, a, a beautiful invitation to the rest of Australia to have a different and a better relationship with First Nations people mm -hmm. and to walk on that journey of a future for a better country together. Just amazing. And it's, it said really three things, basically. That we need a voice to Parliament. We need to engage in treaty-making mm -hmm. because no piece of this land... Um, was ever ceded by Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people when it was settled by the Europeans. It was stolen land. And, um, and the third thing is truth-telling. So to be having very open conversations about what happened in the last 200 and whatever years and the pain and the suffering that that has caused and the intergenerational trauma that's been experienced by First Nations communities. So what we're up to at this point in time is we're about to have a national referendum about voice. Mm -hmm. And the proposal is that there is a, uh, a piece in our national constitution now, as some people call it, our national birth certificate, which actually says there is a, a formal mechanism through which our parliament hears directly the voice of First Nations communities, particularly about any policy or legislation that it impacts on them. And of course in Australia we need a double majority to get that up. So you need the majority of the people in the majority of the states. Mm -hmm. The territories don't get a, get a vote in the, the second bit. So get both of those to get a constitutional change. Wow. And in our history I think we've had over 40 national referenda and only eight have passed. Okay. So there's a lot of work now starting um, on a yes campaign to support the voice. Um, but there is an active group that are campaigning to say no we shouldn't do that. Wow, the, the First Nations people must feel very vulnerable at a mm -hmm. time like this when everybody gets to debate still what they're entitled to. Mm -hmm. And it exactly seems like an amazing opportunity for a kind of like a spiritual health for Australia. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, like, like we should all 
be grateful for an opportunity like this, mm. not just people here in Australia. Absolutely, and I think you're right. I think it is about if we believe in self-determination, if we believe in people's human rights, then I think it takes you down a path. And as you said, we've, we've been through this around marriage equality. We had a plebiscite here in Australia. And I'm not equating the marriage equality plebiscite with, with the voice and the experience of First Nations Australians. But we even know the experience of the marriage equality and how much that impacted on you know, the LGBTIQA mm-hmm. plus community. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I was terrified the day that the Australian Bureau of Statistics announced the result. We had a party set out at my work and I, everyone was all excited. I just was terrified that it was going to be a no. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. And I cannot even think how difficult this period is going to be for First Nations Australians. And we've got to look after the, uh, our friends from First Nations communities because it's going to be tough. Mm-hmm. And I can't even envisage a no vote and what that might mean mm-hmm. in terms of the relationship between people in this country and the future. And that's yeah. that's the thing that you know I'm committed personally to fight for a yes because I think that's the right thing to do. It's and, giving me chills. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know what? And I think civil society has a part to play in that as well. Massively so. I think it's not. Um, there was a, a First Nations leader here called Noel Pearson who uh, um, delivered a speech last year as that, and he, he said very, very pointedly, we cannot achieve this constitutional change on our own. First Nations Australians are such a small percentage of the total Australian population. Um, you need to take up your responsibility to make this change if that's what you think we need to do. Well, because without you, we cannot do, do it. it. And it... It is a you know it's a mm-hmm. numbers game in the end, yeah. but we've got to win people's hearts and minds and have those conversations that we had in the marriage equality debate around the kitchen table mm-hmm. with Granny, you know, with Mum and Dad, and have those conversations yeah, around right. why is this important, not just for now but for the future. I always think truth telling is where healing begins, especially a country with a colonial past. Like we see in it in Germany after World War Two, they made sure that every one of the children knew of the horrors that were perpetrated by the Nazis. And they really healed from it. And I think Europe went through a healing process if they didn't do that. I think it would be a lot worse. While the UK, <laughs> never like most uh, Brits don't even know about the Irish famine or the famine that happened in India due to their colonial policies, you know, yes. and they completely just disregard it. And, um, then they, they don't know um, what they have done to many countries in sub-Saharan Africa and are can still continuing to do because they never got on top of the history and what they have done to this world in many respects in the, in the negative element. But I think also they don't relate to the history, you know, they don't think that, that they're not part of that generation, they don't relate to the monarchy, they don't necessarily relate to the politicians mm. and they just don't feel or understand that there is a responsibility I hope that the Australians understand their responsibility, but speaking of personal responsibility, I think, Mark, you are someone who has more than fulfilled all of yours. Yes. And we want to thank you for speaking with us today, but more importantly, for everything that you have done Mm -hmm. for queer people, for bi people, Mm -hmm. trans people, and and hopefully for First First Nations people too. Before we go, last one. In all your years of working with people living with HIV, who's your favourite? <laughs> and why is it me? I'm looking at them. It's me. Yeah. 
what, what have you seen has made people grow the most in their HIV journey? I think when people are able to engage with peers. I think it's so important that people get to see, uh, meet other people living with HIV in, in you know, good and safe environments because I think it can, uh, you know, educate people about what the possibilities are with life. Um, that, that things can change, particularly, you know, after first diagnosis when, you know, things are a bit upside down in your world. Um, but I think the importance of peer, peer connection and peer-based approaches. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, even in Australia, we've got an um, amazing network of positive organisations, you know, with the National Peak NAPWA, another great acronym. Um, <laughs> uh, but even I saw a, that we do a, a survey here, HIV Futures 10 in 21-22, and there was still a massive number of people who did not know another person living with HIV. Yeah. And I think that's one of our challenges, is how do, we, how do we connect people and provide opportunities so that people can go, I'm part of a community. And when you're part of a community, your world changes. You feel loved. You feel Indeed. loved. And you should be. You're not in it alone, gonna, folks. I'm going to take it back. You're not a finessitator. You're a lover, baby. Yes. And a fighter. Yes. Okay, everyone. I hope you are as inspired as I am after that talk. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us, everyone at home. And thank you so much for thank joining you, us. Thank you, Judy Dench. <laughs> yeah, we really appreciate it. Until next time, everyone, remember to... Stay powerful. And stay positive. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to Pause Vibe Podcast. If you enjoyed this week's episode, show us you care by leaving a five-star review wherever you listen. And don't forget to follow us on social media at Pause Vibe Podcast for all the latest news and updates. This season of Pause Vibe Podcast is recorded in Sydney, Australia, on the land of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people. We wish to acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this beautiful place.